0: Um, Thank you for coming. Thanks for being with us today, uh, for joining us, being the church uh, today. Um, We're just in the second week of uh, what we call in the Christian calendar the Advent season here, and um, we're looking at the names that were given to uh, the child of the promise. The child was born on Christmas Day. Last week we saw what it means that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And, and today we're going to look a little bit about uh, another name that was given, the most common name that was given to, by which we uh, call um, God incarnate who came to be with us. But it's important because uh, names are something that's so sacred and so important to us, right? Um, when we see a little uh, baby that we've gotten to know for a a little bit. Um, One of the first questions that we ask when we see them time and time again is, hey, do you know what my name is? Because we want the baby to say our name. We want people to know what our name is. When um, I I was in about third grade, I started uh, taking Taekwondo classes. And so um, I was also taking Korean school. And so I I knew how to read Korean. And so in the uh, Taekwondo studio uh, school that I was a part of, our master would write The people's names in Korean on the uh, on the I don't know what this thing is called on there. It folds over like this, and so on one of these flaps that fold over, that he would write their Korean name so that he could always look at them. And I would, you know, just being a precautious little third grader, would just walk up to random people that I didn't know, and I would look at their names, and I would say, uh, Chris, and I would say, Hi, Chris, and I would walk up to another person, and I would say, uh, Tina. and I would say, Hi, Christina, and they'd be like, How would you? How did you know my name? And and it will be this crazy thing because names are so sacred to, to us. And so we sing this song, He Knows My Name, and and our hearts are moved by it because all of us want people to know our name because it's so much a part of who we are. And so as we look into the most common name given to the Son of God as He came on Christmas Day, we're going to seek to understand what that tells us about who He is. So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, and look at the name Jesus. Most, I'm sure every one of us have heard the name of Jesus, but... i am afraid I asked you, do you know what the name of Jesus means? Um, I would venture a guess that a great majority of us would not have any idea uh, what the most important name in human history and the most important name in Christianity, probably the most important name that if you'd ask uh, any of us, say the most important name to us, um, many of us don't really know what it means. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. This is God's word. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is God's word. You'll give him the name Jesus, it says. Because he will save his people from their sins. In that short sentence, in that short phrase right there, we see three things that tell us so much about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So, we're going to look at the character of Jesus, we're going to look at our crisis, and then lastly, we're going to look at Jesus' calling. Okay, his character, who is he? What does the name of Jesus reveal about who he is? Secondly, what does the name Jesus tell us about our crisis, our need, our human predicament? And then lastly, what does the name Jesus tell us about his calling, what he came to do, his mission, his purpose in life? Okay, so there's three things we're going to look at. The first thing is, what do we see about the character of this Christ child, of Jesus, the Christmas child? What do we see about Jesus, his character by virtue of him being named Jesus? Well, the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus was one of the most common names in first century Judaism. Okay, so it was a very, very common name. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus said that living around the time of Jesus, there were about 20 people of his age who had the same name. So it's kind of like, you know, when I was growing up in my youth ministry, about a couple hundred people, uh, there was so many people with the same name. And so somebody would uh, be eating lunch or something, all of us in the cafeteria, and someone would say, hey, David, and then like 10 of us would turn around. And they would say, no, 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 not you. And I'd say, I'm David Kim. And then five of us would turn around. so <laughs> It's kind of like that. The name of Jesus was like that. There were so many people like Jesus who go to school and, and he'd have like four other buddies named Jesus. There were in, in every in, in every time period, right? Gary and Echo King just had a baby named her Caitlin, beautiful little baby girl. But in every period of time there are names that are common. Uh, We don't see, if you go to like the baby books or go to Winnie Palmer Hospital, you don't see many birth certificates. If they would let you look at the birth records, you don't see many babies named Maude these days born, right? Or Gertrude or Ethel. Oh, beautiful girl. Let's, Let's name her Mabel or Hazel or Edna. Oh, Edna. Beautiful. What a beautiful name. We don't see many children called Harry or... Um, I don't know. It's a little bit harder for guys' names. But did you know that in the in the year 1900, those were the most popular names? Why? I don't know why they were. Maybe there's something going on at the time. But today, you know what the most popular names today are for girls? It is. Let me see if I can. Isabella number one it, 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 it displaced Olivia, which is number two, and then Sophia number three. Uh, for guys, Ethan, Jacob, Noah. These are the most popular names in the year 2010. I was reading somewhere this week that um, a lot of the names, I don't, um, I don't watch this show, but a lot of names of characters from the show Glee are becoming popular names these days. So there's always something uh, in, the, in the culture, in, the, in, the, in society at the time that drives people to say, you know what, I want to name my child this, I want to name my child that. But Jesus was a very common, ordinary name at the time. And from the very outset, we see something about the character of Jesus that he came to be the common person. He came to be the every man. He came to be the ordinary person. He didn't come and say, you know what, if I'm going to be a human, uh, I'm going to endure it for however many years of my life and I'm just going to stand on the fringes and and watch what everyone else does. I'm not going to engage in, I'm not going to get my hands dirty. It was quite the opposite. Jesus was fully immersed in his humanity. when Queen Elizabeth came to visit, um, United States, she came with 4,000 pounds of luggage. That's a lot of luggage because when we go on international trips, mission trips, our limit is 50, 50 pounds. And we have these contests whenever we go on mission trips to see uh, who can have the lightest bag and who has the heaviest bag. And, and it's always women who have the heaviest bags. But Queen Elizabeth, when she came, 4,000 pounds of luggage. Right? That's a lot of luggage. It cost upwards of $20 million for her to travel as a foreign dignitary to come to another land. She had 40 pints of blood for some reason in case she needed a blood transfusion. She had 40 pints of plasma with her. She had two of every kind of... Uh, outfit for every occasion. She had a black mourning dress in case someone passed away while she was um, while she was on vacation while she was visiting the United States. She had her own uh, hairdresser, valet, and uh, just a whole entourage of people. And the whole purpose of Queen Elizabeth having all that stuff was so that she could be separated from the common person. Leather toilet seat covers. She brought a bunch of those also, because her Royal Highness. Heine does not sit on the toilets that other common people use. And so she did all of these things to separate herself, but with Jesus, it was completely different. He came as a human being, and he fully immersed himself in the humanity, in the common, ordinary life that you and I live. Joan Osborne, in the 90s, wrote this song, What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home, trying to find a way home. And a lot of people were upset by that. They're like, that's sacrilegious, that's blasphemous. How dare you call God a slob like one of us? But it was an honest question that she was asking. And in fact, it is a lot more theologically tight and accurate than many people would want to believe. That Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, was indeed one of us. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, she was a, uh, she's an author. I don't really know too much about her but she said something to the effect of whatever it is that god had in mind when he allowed humanity to go through all of these things uh, he took that medicine for himself as well he didn't say human beings are going to go through this and then he's going to be completely separated from it he understood what it was to not have a lot of money he understood what it was to not have a place to lay his head he knew what it was to have family members and get into fights and have busy, hectic schedules. He knew what it was to have all of those things. For whatever reason, God allows us to go through it. He did not separate himself from it. That's the message that Jesus was giving and coming as the ordinary common person with the name Jesus. But why? Why Jesus? There were a bunch of common names at the time, but why did he call himself Jesus? Jesus. If you uh, maybe if you in your Bible it has this little footnote it says Jesus is a Greek form of Joshua it means the Lord saves um, Jesus was the Greek rendering of this Hebrew name Joshua which means the Lord saves I basically just said what I just said uh, read here but it it means the Lord saves and when many children were being many sons were named Jesus it was a it was a hope that parents were giving naming their sons with this messianic longing that a deliverer was going to come and was going to save their people. And so in naming all of their sons Jesus, it was, it was an expression of hope. Come Lord Jesus, come God, save your people from this oppression. Deliver your people. Would you come and would you do that? It was a, it was a name of hope. And yet as common as the name of Jesus was, it was also extremely uncommon for this very reason. When uh, Gary and Echo had their, their baby, baby comes out. They didn't hold it T- uh, the baby in their hands and say to the doctor, oh, this is a beautiful child. What do you think we should name her? They didn't uh, go into the, into, the, uh, uh, into the hallway and pull out some random nurse and say, hey, 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 what do you think we should name our child? Why? Because this is, you know, you're like, what the heck are you talking about? Here's the time. Every child is named by their parent, right? It's simple. It's a simple fact. 46 times in the Bible, it says someone was naming a child and all 46 times it was a parent. Uh, uh, I think 20, uh, 44 times. 28 times it was a father, uh, 16 times it was a mother. But by and large, that's the way that it was. Parents would name their child. It's interesting to see here. As you look in verse 20, who is it that names this child Jesus? It's not Mary. It's not Joseph. It says in verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Joseph, yada, yada, yada. Uh, verse 21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then jumped down 25. He had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. He gave him the name Jesus. As common as the name of Jesus was, as ordinary as the name as Jesus was, the naming of Jesus was unlike any other in human history. And so what Matthew is trying to say and what the message of the Bible is trying to say in this passage here is that Jesus was so much like us, and yet he was so unlike us. He came to be so common, and yet at the same time, he's so uncommon. Jesus Christ is so ordinary, and yet at the same time, he's so extraordinary. Why? Because the angel was simply a messenger of God, an angel with the mouthpiece of God. And so in saying, the angel saying, he will give him the name Jesus. Here's what he's saying, is that God is giving this child the name Jesus. And so in the angel saying, Joseph, you will name him Jesus. Here's what he's saying, this child is a child of God. The character of Jesus is that he is the God-man, fully God and fully man, completely ordinary and yet completely extraordinary. He was unlike any other and yet so much like you and me. That's who Jesus Christ came to be. You see, uh, Joshua in the Old Testament was an instrument of God's salvation, but Jesus himself was salvation. He was a name above all names, a name unlike any other. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee will one day bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. It's why, and we we hear this a lot, it's why when you watch TV, you watch movies which are anti-Christian, or you go into your schools in the secular universities and secular humanism that pervades our culture, and someone does something and they get hurt or they get injured, you never hear them say, ah, Allah, or ah, Buddha, or ah, Oprah, whatever it is. Why is it that they all, the name that they're always saying is they always say the name of Jesus Christ? Because in this cosmic conflict that pervades our world, the only name that the enemy wants to see tarnished and dirtied and sullied is the name above all names, Jesus Christ. It's not Allah. It's not Muhammad. It's not some prophet. It's not Shiva. It's not Krishna. It's, it's Jesus Christ himself. This is the character of Jesus. He is so much like you and me and yet completely other He is a name above all names. This is who he came to be. That's the first thing that we see. His name is Jesus. The second thing that we see, though, is our crisis. It says, he, you'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What is this great crisis? What is this grand crisis in our lives? When it says he will save his people, there are two things that this presupposes. The first thing is that there's a great danger. The second thing is that we need outside help in order to be rescued from this great danger. What is this great danger? What is the great danger that we face? We all know, if we have read our Bibles, that this great danger is sin. Because he goes on to say he will save his people from their sins. Sin is not this like isolated, innocuous little thing that we do. It's, it's a one-time thing and, and, and no one else knows about it or it's, it's just finished with it. But it is a completely pervasive, destructive reality that once it entered into the world, everything was messed up. It's why we experience the things that we experience in this life. It's why one of my... See, I don't want to... I don't want to talk about that. But it's why everything that's rotten and evil and broken in this world is the way that it is. It's why we have earthquakes. It's why we have disasters. It's why we have mental illnesses. It's why we have schizophrenia. It's why we have a divorce. It's why we have injustice. It's why we have rape. It's why we have slavery. It's why we have oppression. All of these things are a result of sin that pervaded and completely jacked up everything that there is in this world. We cannot go a single a day, hour, minute of our lives without seeing the effects of sin. It's why we get sick. It's why we die. It's why people get the flu this time of year. It's why people have a hard time medically. It's why all these things happen. It's because of this grand, great danger, this, this huge, colossal collapse of a thing called sin that jacked up and ruined the world that we live in. And Jesus came because that's our crisis. Because that's our situation. You see, when it, let's go back to Genesis, back in the garden. This is pretty cool because I want to tie these next two points together. And if you follow with me, I, I want you to really kind of enter into seeing how uh, how pervasive sin is, and yet at the same time, how good the news of salvation really is. See, in in the garden, there's this created order where God stands outside of creation. He created man first, as actually man as the. Uh, supreme over all creation, the apple of his eye, the delight of the Father's heart. He created man, and then out of man he created woman, and then he told them to rule over the world, all of creation. So you've got this pecking order here. It's God, it's man, and then his leadership given to serve woman, and then creation. Yet in the garden, what happens in temptation when sin enters the world, all of this gets flipped upside down. The creation, the serpent rises up on top and he tempts the woman who then tempts man who says, God, it's we're going over you. And so this creation order gets flipped upside down. And when that happens, everything gets marred in this life. See, the very essence of of sin is that we're trying to be like God. Let me explain it this way. What is it that God did in creating the world in six days? the, The constant refrain is he saw and it was good. He saw and it was good. Six times over, he saw it was good. And at the end of it all, it was very good. When sin enters the world, in that temptation, what happens? Eve saw, and what did she say? It was good. She saw the fruit and saw that it was good. Sin, at very essence, is us displacing God, us taking the place of God. That's what sin is, and that's what happened. This created order was flipped upside down, and the world spun out into chaos. Pervasive effects of sins affecting everything. Our minds are affected. We don't think properly. We don't think in the lines of God. Romans 1 tells us that though we know there's a God, all of creation evidences to the fact that there is a God, and he's glorious. We suppress it. Because of our sin. Our hearts are jacked up. Jeremiah uh, tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. We think we're doing what's right, but really it's causing pain to other people. Our wills, we don't do the things that we want to do. Romans 7 tells us that. Everything about sin has affected everything else about this world. It's like dominoes. I love watching dominoes fall. You you watch some of these videos where it's just one domino. You knock it down, and then it's just like all these other ones, and then it branches out into all kinds of different places, and poof! The pervasive effect of one domino falling. That's what sin is. The entire world, the entire creation, all of the cosmos has been completely, utterly jacked up. And every relationship, our relationship with God, created to be an intimate relationship of love, was completely severed. Isaiah 59:2, all who went to Harvest 201 know this, right? But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Our relationship with God was severed in such a way that there is alienation, isolation between us and God. And we're no longer in that intimate relationship with him that was severed. Our relationship with each other, Adam and Eve, was completely jacked up, where before he said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, the first love song coming out, you complete me. Now they begin to blame and accuse, manipulating one another. I see this in my relationships all the time. I, you know, as much as Olivia tries to love and sacrifice for me, hey, this this past week I got into, um, I I was, I was having a really bad day, and I decided that I wanted to blame and accuse her and take it out on her. And as soon as I did that, I realized what am I doing? I'm placing all of. My bad day upon her and blaming her for it, and that's what happens in our interpersonal relationships. We blame, we accuse. It's not just in those relations; our relationship with ourselves. We were naked and we were ashamed. Shame is something we feel I, we feel about ourselves. Our relationship with ourselves was completely jacked up, and so we don't see ourselves the way that we ought to. We don't love ourselves the way that we ought to. So what what do we do? We look at ourselves and we either think too highly of ourselves, right? Or we think too low of ourselves. We hate ourselves. We look in the mirror and we can't stand the person that we see. We look at our lives and we're filled with just regret. And so we go into some corner and we beat ourselves up. It's why people cut themselves. It's why people want to do harm to themselves because they don't love. We don't love ourselves the way that we're supposed to. We can't accept ourselves because we're naked and we're ashamed of who we are. And our relationship with all of creation has gotten messed up as well. Thorns mar the ground. It says that our relationship, with not only uh, interpersonally, but with our creation has been messed up. And everything about our world has been checkered. Those things that were wrong, we've made them right. And we have redefined sin. Remember back in the day, Canterbury Tales, it talks about seven deadly sins. And the book of Proverbs talks about them. We think about these seven deadly sins. And yet in our culture today, these sins that we know are sinful, these things that we consider to be deadly, are praised and embraced in our culture. Pride. Pride, which is a deadly sin. It's the seed of all sins. We look at pride. We look at people who are prideful, and we give them reality TV shows, and we say, you are the best. We hail people who say, I'm number one. I'm going to change my name to Ocho Cinco, or whatever it is. I'm going to have my own TV show. I'm going to do all of these great things. I'm going to hail myself. And we look at them, and we, we applaud them for having drivenness, for having passion, for having this competitive competitive edge we've redefined sin and called something that God considered to be awful a virtue pride it doesn't it just it doesn't end there greed isn't greed what drives our economy and fuels the downfall of corporations and nations things that God said is a sin we've hailed and lifted it up lust now the number one Number one money-making industry on the internet, something that is ruining families, ruining churches, ruining lives, ruining relationships, and yet exalted as being Whatever it is, this distortion of an amazing gift that God has given of love has been distorted. This amazing gift of sex has been distorted and hailed as a virtue. It can go on and on envy. It's what drives commercials to say, look at this person's body. Don't you want a body like that? Don't be satisfied with yours. Don't be satisfied with your drinky-dinky car. Now you can have a Toyota Camry. It makes us envious of other people who have better cars than us. To, to, to want the better computer, the better gadget, whatever it might be. Sloth. Right? laziness, we've, we've redefined all of these things and hailed it. It's not laziness anymore. It is being motivationally dispossessed. That's what it is. And we redefine sin. So it, we have two options here, either to think that, yeah, we have come a long way from the biblical roots and this world has gone flipped upside down, which the Bible says the created order flipped upside down. We can see this world is like that. Or we can say, you know what? The writers of the Bible were old fashioned, naive and prudes. We've advanced this far. And so what we hail as virtues, these things that the Bible considers sins, we just need to catch up. They need to catch up with the times. The biblical answer is very clear, that sin has distorted everything about our lives. It is a crisis beyond repair. It's one thing to know that this is the problem. But the twofold definition of salvation is, one, there's a great danger, but two, we need outside help. It's one thing to know that this is the issue. This is the problem. But if we don't have an answer for it, then it's just as good as being lost without knowing the problem. You know, uh, you ever watch the show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? It's, it's funny. Imagine the guy who um, is on this, like, question, million-dollar question or 250000 whatever it is. He's got this question. He doesn't know the answer to it. And so he's got one lifeline left, and he phones a friend. I love you. Phones his friend and gets on the phone and the guy says, hello. And he's like, John, this is Regis Philbin with, you know, ABC or whatever it is, NBC. Uh, got your friend on the line. And he's like, oh, you know, great. And so friend says, okay, uh, here's a question. Um, I don't know, whatever the, the question might be. What's the, what's the capital of, of, of uh, Florida? And he says, Tallahassee, Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa. And the guy's like, "Can um, can you uh, – Repeat the question. You know, what's the capital of Florida? Tallahassee, Jacksonville, Orlando, or Tampa? Like, uh, I, think, uh, I think, hurry, hurry, I got five seconds. Okay, uh, and he's, oh, stinky. It's one thing to know the problem, but if you don't have an answer, it's just as good that you don't know what the problem is. See, the crisis, Jesus, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And uh, we know the pervasive and destructive effects of sin. But we are completely powerless to do anything about it. Marriage covenants are made, and yet they're broken all the time. Peace treaties are made, and yet wars break out in the midst of these treaties. We do all of these. I'm going to try a little bit harder to make it. I'm going to try a little bit harder to do it right. And yet the more we try, it seems like the more we dig ourselves into a hole. What then is a hope? The last thing we see is a calling of Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What is it ultimately that Jesus came to do? He did not come to give us our best life now. He did not come to make us feel happy or to give us another reason to celebrate something at Christmas time. He didn't give us something uh, in order in in the cold days of winter to have something to be happy about. The primary calling of Jesus and the number one reason Jesus came is because he would save his people from their sins. Here's how you may have heard it. If our greatest need had been for education, then God would have sent a teacher. If our greatest need had been for technology, then God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been for money, then God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need was pleasure, then God would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, and so God sent a Savior. so Jesus Christ came because he will save his people from their sins. The pervasive effect of sin is so great we could do nothing, nothing about it. Who, O Lord, could save themselves, right? But how how did this happen? So here comes Jesus. He came to be the ordinary man. He came to live the life that we tried to live. And yet, here's what Jesus did in order to save us from our sins. You remember that in the garden, in the garden, our relationship with God was so severed. The, the, the problem that we faced was alienation. On the cross, Jesus Christ died for us. And on the cross, Jesus healed our alienation with God by becoming alienated for us on the cross. See, in the garden, we severed our relationship with each other. There was blaming and accusing, unjustly blaming, accusing. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was unjustly blamed, unjustly accused for our sins, so that our relationships with one another could be healed. In the garden, we severed our relationship with ourselves, no longer seeing ourselves the way that God wants us to see ourselves, no longer loving ourselves the way that God wants us to love ourselves. On the cross, Jesus Christ was naked, and ashamed so that our damage that was done to ourselves could be repaired so that we could be healed so that we could see ourselves the way that God sees us in the guard. Our relationship with all of creation was jacked up, severed thorns infested the ground. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ took upon himself the thorns in the form of a crown so that one day this world would be healed. The sin, the effects of sin were so pervasive, there was a penalty for it. There was a power of sin, never to be, never to be uh, removed from the presence of sin. Yet on the cross, Jesus Christ took the penalty for our sins. He destroyed the power of sin in our lives. So no longer are we subject to our sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captives free. My chains are gone. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus did. The good news is not simply that you can talk to God now and that when you die, you go to heaven, but that your life can be forever changed, that he died on the cross. He took our place so that we will one day be forever removed from the presence of sin in our lives. No more sickness, no more suffering, no more death in the presence of the one who took our place. You see in the garden. The very essence of sin, death entered when sin took the place of God. But on the cross, life came to us when God took the place of sin. This is the gospel of Christ. And that's why Jesus came. To remove the effects of sin. To be the savior of the world and to be your personal savior. You see, it's one thing that God gave this gift at Christmas. When uh, I was living in an apartment, Olivia was living in Virginia. We were engaged to get married. We had a wedding registry, and uh, we were getting gifts sent to my apartment. And they wouldn't come to my door because there were people would, would steal it. Um, people like Paul Bear and, and Biggie lived there, and so there were apartment complexes was afraid of thieves like them. And so they would keep them at the office, and they would put a note on my door. They would call me, and they would say, hey, we've got a present for you has arrived. The package has arrived. And they would call, and I would, you know, I'd go days before picking it up, just I would not get home in time. The office would close, and so they would leave messages and say, we've got several packages now. You've got to pick them up. There's one thing. There's a difference between having packages there and going and actually getting them and opening them up and living in the blessing of it. See, the reality, verse 18 says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, this is a record of the genealogy. It doesn't say once upon a time or long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Or one day in a long, far-off kingdom there lived a man. It says this is a record. This is how it came about. This is a matter of history. In human history, Jesus Christ, God-man, entered into time and space, entered into the scroll of human history, the one who stood outside of it, and he entered into it. As a matter of fact, and the question is, will you take the gift of this Christmas child and open it for yourself? He says in, in John chapter one, verse 11 and 12, it says, "He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who believed him, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God." Acts 4:12 says, "There's no other name under heaven by which men are saved." Romans 10:13. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. God gave this gift, but the choice is up to each of us to receive him personally as our Savior, as a forgiver of our sins and the master of our life. That's a choice. There's only two of them out there. We receive him or we don't. And at the end of the day, that's the final answer that's going to make all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Let's uh, take a moment to come responding to the word of the Lord in prayer. What are the areas of your life in which sin has affected? And maybe we have acquiesced to it and say, you know what? That's just the way it is in this broken world. There's no hope. Saints of God, the message of Christmas, the hope of Christmas is that he can set you free. There's power in the name of Jesus in the person of Jesus, in the character of Jesus, and all that he came to be. There's power in the name of Jesus. Let's come to the Lord and let's ask the Lord God, would you help me? If it's true that this is who you are, that salvation is so much more than merely the forgiveness of sins, but it is a new life. It is a breaking of the power of sin in my life. What does that mean for me? Let's take some time to go before the Lord and Pray these things. Maybe for some of us in here, we've heard about this gift, but we've not appropriated it into our lives. And God is saying, as I stand at the door and knock, would you open up your heart and let Jesus come in to be all that he was, all that he came to be for you in your life. Let's take a couple of moments to go before the Lord in prayer, responding to the word of God. So let's do that. We're going to pray about a couple of things today, but let's pray first for that as we respond to his word. And as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper, as we come to the table of grace, whereby we're reminded of the one who forgives our sins at a cost to himself, at such a cost to himself. 1 Corinthians tells us that as we come, we want to come in a manner worthy of the Lord's table. It's not saying that we have to be perfect or sinless or flawless, but it does call us to come with an attitude Wanting to honor the Lord, a repentant attitude. It's not about what we've done, it's about the direction that we are now facing. Are we wanting to walk towards Jesus? If we're not, that we would repent, turn 180 degrees, and come back to Jesus. Ask the Lord God, I want to live, to devote myself to you again. So let's renew those covenant vows as we are reminded of this new covenant through the table. Let's ask the Lord that He would prepare us, change us, mold us to come to the table of grace. Father in heaven, we thank you that you made a way for us to come where before the way was blocked off by a wall of sin and by the beauty of your holiness, that two never to interact, that two never to be in union or communion. And yet because of grace, because of Jesus, who did not separate himself from the flaws and the brokenness of this world, but entered fully into it so that he could take our place, not only to live the life we should have lived, but to die the death that we should have died. By virtue of what he's done, we have life. So we thank you. Thank you so much for that grace. May we experience it now at your table. We thank you. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.